Well, this morning at Mo Ranch, Richard Harris is bringing to a conclusion a sermon series that he had just for the retreat on Acts chapter 2. And when our folks get back to join us, the remnant, they're going to be fairly pumped and ready to go in the life of the church. And I pray that even so, those of us here this morning will have a similar uh, trajectory of encouragement and hope from what we're going to receive in the preached word today, not from Acts chapter 2, but in continuing our summer series in the book of Psalms. We reach today Psalm 54. So as is my way, let's have an extended introduction to Psalm 54. World War I, a war fought principally in Western Europe between 1914 and 1918, was one of the deadliest conflicts in world history. It's estimated that over 9 million people were killed in combat and over 5 million civilians died due to bombardment, hunger, and disease. It was once called the Great War and was to be the war that ended all wars. It certainly didn't prove to be. One notable aspect of World War I, the fighting in Western Europe, was the type of land warfare known as trench warfare. This trench warfare involved deep, relatively permanent trenches dug into the ground from which the opposing sides would attack, counterattack, and defend themselves. These opposing systems of trenches were usually fairly close to one another. You weren't far from your enemy when you were in your trenches. The trenches afforded some protection from the widespread use of the machine gun and artillery weaponry. And from these trenches, much of that war was fought. Now you can imagine that the life of the soldiers in those trenches was difficult and harrowing, to say the least. Throughout most of World War I, the opposing armies on the Western Front tried to break through the enemy's trench system by mounting infantry assaults preceded by intense artillery bombardments. These attacks usually failed. From this vivid and tragic history, we've yet gained a phrase that is useful, a phrase that describes a particular hardship of life a hardship typically involving the immediate enemy who was bent on our destruction. And so to be in the trenches, so to speak, can mean to be in a desperate battle for survival itself. The foremost concern in the trenches is the elimination or defeat of the enemy, a nearby enemy whose every purpose is your own demise. And so we have, for our sermon title on Psalm 54 this morning, In the Trenches. I'll read the psalm in a minute, but let me tell you more about this psalm before. The psalm can be understood by using that metaphor in the trenches to set the context. A context concerning which the psalmist David himself faces. It is effectively a psalm from the trenches. It is a psalm detailing David's pleas from the trenches 
some seemingly drastic pleas regarding his enemy. And it is a psalm that ends, surprisingly maybe, with David's joyful worship of the Lord, a worship fueled by peace, a worship fueled by anticipated victory, a worship that can be for us here this morning an enormous comfort and invaluable instruction as regards our many enemies, most especially our most and greatest enemy, death itself. I almost entitled this sermon, An Urgent Supplement to Psalm 23 from the Trenches. Let's see why as we turn to the reading of Psalm 54, God's Word. Hear now God's Word. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This is the word of the Lord. And so it is the word of the Lord, and so it is that we give thanks for it, and so it is that actually it should and does and can penetrate into the deepest recesses of our being and our core in our spirit, to sustain us, to encourage us, and actually in some ways to prevail against those thoughts which are simply wrong, dispelling falsehood and embedding truth where we need it the most, and concerning places we need it the most as regards enemies of all sorts and death itself, we need the truth. We need the full truth. So we'll work through this psalm this morning using three headings. First, ruthless enemies identified. Second, complete destruction urged. Third, anticipatory sacrifice promised. Enemies identified, destruction urged, sacrifice promised. So first, ruthless enemies identified. Though homiletically I've first cast your eyes onto the trenches of World War I, and we will return there later, the specific context of David's psalm is disclosed in the superscription of the psalm, which I did not read previously, and it's not going to be up there on the screen, so listen. This is what the superscription above Psalm 54 says. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? This superscription points to the context and circumstances which are detailed in 1 Samuel 23 verses 15 through 20. I'll not read that text in full, but I will detail it for us. David's ultimate enemy there, it seems, is Saul. Those strangers, these ruthless Ziphites, are aiding Saul. 
Now David knew that Saul had come to seek his life. At this point in the text, David was hiding in the wilderness of Zip at Horish. Jonathan, Saul's son, had come to David at Horish. Jonathan had said to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father knows this. The text next reports that the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David then remained at Horish. Jonathan went home. Okay, we know where David is. Then, then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gabeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hakilach, which is south of Jezimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. So, David's hiding, effectively in the trenches of Horish, and ruthless men seek his destruction. So let's turn now again into Psalm 54 and let's look at the first two verses. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. Now, do you hear both the urgency of this prayer and its very obvious invocation of the Lord's grandeur and might? And do you note embedded here is not only a plea for survival, but so too a plea for vindication, a personal vindication of David as God's anointed king. And most significantly, do note that these pleas are expressly premised on the divine personhood of God and His power. The divine personhood of God and His power. Theologian Gerald Paul highlights four imperatives that are used here by David in these verses. Save me, vindicate me, hear me, give ear. He says, four imperatives combine in verses 1 and 2 to generate the thrust of the, th- of the psalmist appeal as an unmistakable and forceful plea for physical deliverance. The first two, save me and vindicate me, set the psalmist's appeal in direct response to the situation described in the complaint, asking for personal deliverance from the threat of his oppressors. Now verse 3, the complaint and the reason for the appeal is detailed. For strangers have risen against me, Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. And so David identifies these ruthless men. Strangers to him, the Ziphites, who seek his life and who not surprisingly do not set God before themselves. Very bad guys bent on David's demise. Very bad guys who likewise are strangers to God and his ways. Ziphites, so to speak, abound even today. That cannot be denied. But today, Ziphites aren't our particular focus. Though the Psalms' thrust is a message to them and a message to us. Gerald Paul's comments again, albeit narrowly focused on this text and without the omniscience of God in mind, 
He says, the psalmist very intentionally describes his enemies in terms which establish their estrangement from and opposition to God. By establishing his own enemies as God's enemies, the psalmist seeks to convince God that God himself has a vested interest in the psalmist's cause. But of course, Mr. Pauls, God needs no convincing. And yet the very words chosen by David make abundant sense to us. They're the very real words of a besieged man which are employed in an honest and desperate plea to God for physical deliverance. The Lord well knew the identity and disposition of those who sought David's life. And David's prayer did not educate the Lord. But don't we all pray just like this? Joining our prayers and pleas to God with details that He already knows intimately? Frankly, it cannot be otherwise. It's actually impossible for us to educate the Lord by and in our prayers, and yet He welcomes and receives glory by and in our prayers. Genuine prayer to our triune God is the quintessential expression of faith, the normative and glorious privilege that is ours, a life-sustaining privilege without which our lives would be radically diminished. How's your own prayer life? Robust? Lukewarm? Absent? For those living in the trenches, robustness is surely an understatement. For those living in the uncertain and passing comforts of this age, lukewarm and absent is sadly the likely measure of a prayer life. How about you? How about me? Maybe our prayer life, in fact, is disoriented because we don't understand the very realities that surround us, imagining that we are surrounded in comfort and affluence and therefore all is well, when in fact the seriousness of our situation and the world situation is such that surely, and most of us know this very intimately, we live in the trenches, notwithstanding the abundance that has been extended into most of our lives, the extended comfort and affluence, and yet even there we are in the trenches if we rightly understand where we are. Point two, complete destruction urged. For many of us, David's next points in verses four and five are naturally to be expected and then not the least bit objectionable. God, you are the upholder of my life, so then help me by destroying my enemies. But as we must observe briefly, this is not how everybody hears that last verse. Not everyone hears it without objection. Verses 4 and 5, Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness put an end to them. David is certain that the Lord is the upholder of his life, and in verse 5 he unashamedly associates that upholding 
with a corresponding plea that the Lord not uphold the lives of His enemies, but rather that the Lord put an end to their lives. Crush them, Lord. Put an end to their lives, Lord. In Your faithfulness, crush them. For some, especially those who elevate and isolate the later words of Christ recorded in the New Testament, which direct believers to love their enemies, this type of plea within a psalm is actually deeply disturbing. Now, I would say charity toward those who are troubled here, rather than an immediate dismissal of their sensibility, is wise, albeit that charity need not and will not lead toward acceptance of their stance. Theologian John Day outlines the issue that's at hand. He says, one eminently troublesome portion of the Scriptures is the so-called imprecatory psalms. These psalms express the desire for God's vengeance to fall on His and His people's enemies, and include the use of actual curses or imprecations. For, for not are Christians to love their enemies, and to bless and curse not? How then does one justify praying for God to put an end to them? Are the imprecatory psalms merely a way of venting rage without really meaning it? Or is cursing enemies the Old Testament way and the loving enemies the New Testament way? Has the morality of Scripture evolved? And I would say asking these questions in our own cultural moment is, is itself supercharged with passion and relevance. For the unbelieving world today is effectively shouting this about Christianity. They shout, the imprecatory Psalms are exactly the proof of not only the Old Testament way, but the New Testament way as well. For hateful, angry Christians invoke a hateful, angry God to carry out hate and destruction against people who disagree with them or get in their way. Such hatefulness, a hatefulness fueled by a metaphysical fantasy, must itself be crushed. Christianity is itself the enemy of humanity. Now there are people, lots of them, and movements, lots of them today, that that is actually accurate description of their perspectives. So we would be wise to have an answer here with regard to these Psalms, praying for destruction or crushing of enemies, not only for the tender-hearted believer who isolates select portions of Jesus' Word, but also for all those who condemn Christianity as hateful to the core. And what is that answer? Though not intended as a comprehensive answer, I think Reformed theologian and pastor J.G. Voss, which, who's the son of Gerhardus Voss, unfolds the answer with genuine clarity, biblical depth, and goodwill, even though, honestly, spoken with an unusual directness by today's standards, an unusual directness. He says, the fundamental objection or major premise of the objection to imprecatory psalms is that it is immoral to wish or pray for the doom or destruction of another. This objection is, perhaps often unconsciously, founded upon two propositions. The first is that the welfare of man is the chief end of man, and the second is that a man has rights even God is bound to respect. The chief end of man is to glorify God, not to seek the welfare of man. 
These two are, of course, not mutually exclusive. The glory of God includes the welfare of man in general, but Scripture teaches that particular cases may and do exist where the two conflict, and in such cases the believer must seek the glory of God and not the welfare of man, which is in conflict with the glory of God. So Voss highlights here that it is not always immoral to pray for the doom and destruction of another. And for most of us, the context facing David here certainly justifies his plea. David knew he was God's anointed, and unlike Christ, he had not been called to a sacrificial death. His physical deliverance, even if accompanied by putting an end to his enemies, would be congruent with the glory of God. And Voss explains further that imprecatory psalms reach toward notions of justice. He says, The destruction of the wicked which is prayed for in the imprecatory psalms is not murder, but execution. The psalms do not seek the unjust destruction of the life of man. On the contrary, they are in essence an appeal to the justice of God and a prayer for that justice to execute sentence upon the wicked. God is both sovereign and righteous. He possesses the unquestionable right to destroy all evil in the universe. If it is a right for God to plan and effect this destruction, then it is also a right for the saints to pray for the same. Instead of being influenced by the sickly sentimentalism of the present day, he wrote some 50 years ago, seems like that should be still accurate, Christian people should realize that the glory of God demands the destruction of evil. Instead of being ashamed of the imprecatory psalms and taking time to apologize for them or explain them away, Christian people should glory in them and not hesitate to use them in the public and private exercises of the worship of God. And so we're doing just that this morning, even with Psalm 54, which is probably the mildest of the several psalms that are designated as imprecatory. In fact, some of you probably would even miss that it was imprecatory if I hadn't taken a whole five or ten minutes to talk about it. But I seized the opportunity. And you'll come across other psalms where, knowing what I just said, you'll say, oh yeah, I remember he said that. This is how I should view this. This is harsh. But it's not harsh when the glory of God is held tightly and kept in mind. Now, third point. This is the richest point in my judgment. Anticipatory sacrifice promised. The conclusion of this psalm is sudden and striking, and it offers comfort and instruction for us, but only, only if we grasp what is so striking and so gloriously bold in David's concluding words. The tenor and mood of desperate appeal for deliverance from enemies jumps, maybe better, leaps to a present anticipation of a deliverance which, though yet to come, is so certain that it propels David's present promise to make a free will offering, which is a celebratory sacrifice to the Lord. He projects forward to his deliverance and to an opportunity in worship to participate in the Old Testament sacrifice, a celebratory sacrifice, a free will offering. That's where he goes in the trenches after this plea. He leaps there. Here's the language of our text. 
With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Amidst the horror of the trench, a confident anticipation of deliverance. A happy ending to the psalm before the deliverance being sought in the psalm actually arrives. A magnificent and profound conclusion to this psalm. David expresses here his intention to make a free will offering, which as I say is a particular type of Old Testament sacrificial offering. An offering where, listen, the sacrifice presented on the altar is not wholly consumed, but is afterwards eaten, eaten in celebration by the worshiper and the priest. It's an offering that is itself associated with indicating assurance of God's deliverance, whether it has arrived or is still to come. This promise of sacrifice is unconditional. David's already convinced that God will help him. Anticipation, joy, gratitude propel David's promise of the making of a free will offering from the immediacy of the trenches in which he makes these pleas. And we must surely wonder, how could that be? How could David, amidst the danger and horror that quite reasonably drove his pleas for deliverance, then seamlessly move to a joyful, worshipful anticipation and assurance of that deliverance? The proximity should surely stun us. Oh, Pastor, do please tell us more of this proximity, for we each know well the need for and plea of deliverance from enemies of various sorts, be it illness, disease, our own sinfulness, the wickedness of others, and yet, and yet we know far, far less, and we long to experience this striking and rapid turn toward a confident anticipation and assurance of a deliverance even before its arrival. Tell us more, Pastor. I will. Let's then look at two places. First, closely at verse 7, the concluding verse. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. There is, it seems here, somewhat of a track record of past deliverances and past vindications over enemies that David may be referencing. God has shown himself to be David's helper and upholder of his life in the past. And frankly, that's surely so for each of us, no matter our present trench status at the moment. He has and does sustain us daily, moment by moment. And whether or not we understand it and appreciate it, He does and has delivered you and me from many dangers and many enemies daily. Daily. For those of you who find yourself amidst a deep medical need and you know what you need, what is particularly helpful would be an immune system that had been revived to work to fight off certain things. Oh, our immune systems daily 
fight off so much. Even compromised immune systems fight off enemies. And that's just an easy example. There's so much more as I think about as we come and go during our days. And yet, this protection against enemies that is moment by moment and daily as regard our physical lives, that is not even the greatest, the greatest protection that is ours. There's more. So let's look again at verse 1 of this particular psalm where it says, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. And I would submit to you, friends, that it's here that we actually faintly but unmistakably grasp a past vindication for our present resourcing. The past vindication of Jesus Christ, a vindication over the greatest enemies of all, sin and death. A past vindication is there for our reflection and for our appropriation too. As David looked back on past experiences of vindication and deliverance, how much more can we, should we, can we, do we look back and reflect on the past vindication of Jesus Christ? For even today we can hold the past vindication of Christ before our hearts and minds, a vindication not, way, not by way of deliverance from physical death, but by way of Christ's sacrificial death, a vindication involving His glorious resurrection and exaltation, and most profoundly a vindication that for those who are united to Christ by faith is presently a shared vindication, a vindication whose full consummation will be realized, a past vindication of Christ and us upon which we can rest now, even as we find ourselves in the trenches of this passing age. The New Testament makes clear, and the Apostle Paul with intense description emphasizes, that, are in, that in Christ we are even now able to look in triumph over our greatest enemies, sin and death. That's because Christ, but that is because in Christ redemption has been accomplished, and by His Holy Spirit that redemption has been applied to us who are His. As we will soon be turning to the Lord's table, this too is worth our attention. David's specific reference here to a promised free will offering provides us with a fitting, even deep connection to this sacrament. For by his promised free will offering, David expresses and celebrates his anticipated vindication and deliverance. And at the table we too celebrate, but we're invited to celebrate a vindication and deliverance that has already occurred. The deliverance in and through the broken body and shed blood of Christ for those who are His by faith. A deliverance by means of our union with Christ. A deliverance we shall celebrate until He returns. Theologian John Collins unfolds this often overlooked connection between this particular type of Old Testament sacrifice 
and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, without diminishing its connection to the Passover meal, Collins adds this. What is the connection between Old Testament sacrifices and the Christian Eucharist? The usual answer among Christians today is that the death of Christ fulfilled and thus abolished the Old Testament sacrifices and that the Eucharist had this basis in the Passover. And that's an understandably insupportable answer. But he adds, but in the New Testament text detailing the Eucharist, the interpretive backcloth for the Eucharist is not as often thought the Passover, but the free will offering in which the worshipers eat of the sacrifice. It follows that the meaning of the Eucharist should be similar to the free will offering to celebrate God's provision of grace and to enjoy, enjoy His presence as He draws near to us in the meal. At the same time, as we note continuity, we should note the redemptive historical development. Namely, in the free will offering, the bloody sacrifice foreshadowed Jesus' own sacrificial death, while in the Eucharist, the worshipers now feast by faith on the sacrifice of Jesus. Now finally, before we come to the table, let's return briefly to the trenches of World War I, where in 1914, on Christmas Eve, a most unimaginable series of events unfolded. Up and down the Western Front, Christmas caroling spontaneously broke out as enemy combatants in their respective trenches joined voices singing carols of Christ's coming. Some singing in German, others singing in English. A German soldier singing of Silent Night, overheard in the British trenches, is credited often with the starting of this caroling. At the first light of dawn on Christmas Day, some German soldiers emerged from their trenches and approached the Allied lines across no man's land, calling out Merry Christmas in their enemy's native tongue. At first the Allied soldiers feared it was a trick, but seeing the Germans unarmed, they climbed out of their trenches and shook hands with the enemy soldiers. A spontaneous Christmas truce, a holiday celebration of sorts, broke out. Although not likely appreciated in full at the time by those so celebrating, it actually symbolized the celebration of a far greater victory than could ever be achieved by warriors in the trenches of a battlefield. It symbolized, in my judgment, a final victory by Christ that some warriors on each side could claim and would realize, some possibly even within minutes or hours after the truce had ended. Afterwards, of course, they returned to their trenches. The war resumed for three more years. Now, this account highlights both a longing for life and peace inside the trenches of life, but even more vividly points to a deliverance and vindication that's centered on and secured by Christ, a deliverance that is and will be far greater even than any deliverance from mere human enemies. A deliverance that knows no nationalistic, racial, or ethnic bound. A deliverance from, enemy, from the enemies of sin and death for all those who are in Christ. Be they German, be they British, be they African, be they Asian, be they young, be they old. For we are assured 
For we are assured that Christ must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the believer, oh, hear this, friends. For the believer, we know that our last earthly breath is immediately to be followed by our first heavenly breath. And so the Word of God declares this in 1 Corinthians 15, which you won't have before you, but you know it. Listen well. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that is a victory that we can, in fact, appropriate and have now. It is a victory which is a shared victory. It's a present victory with the fullness of it to be revealed. So even now, from the trenches of our lives in this passing age, and listen, I know the trenches that some of you are in, and they are the darkest and deepest trenches that I could imagine. And for those that aren't there yet, I think you'll stumble into that trench in time. Even there, and especially there, we can boldly say with Paul, excuse me, with David, with anticipation and assurance what he says at the end of this particular psalm. We can say it now with anticipation and assurance, for he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Grasp this. Rest in it. It is yours. It is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we do seek to grasp more fully that which is ours in Christ. We first want to give glory for, for all that that Christ has accomplished. But Father, we pray that we would not fall short of understanding the significance of that accomplishment as it is applied to those of us who by faith belong to Him. Father, we live in times that for some appear to be robustly comfortable and affluent, but yet we know in the true reality of our situation that in the moment and in the eventualities of life we will be in trenches, trenches for which even there we long to appropriate and to understand and reflect on the deliverance and vindication that was accomplished by Christ that is shared by us and that will be realized in full. And may that grasp sustain us, protect us, lift our spirits and create a, a, an abounding longing to see you and all who are yours face to face in the kingdom that will be coming. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.